are, are you are you back in your postpartum depression? Right I now am. I really am. Yeah, I'm so sad. I am oh, so sad. Dude. So sad. Yeah. Oh, you know what? He doesn't have his antidepressant entertainment fix. Whatever. By which I mean the most depressing show ever made. <laughs> the most existentially excoriating show you could watch. And he's over here like, oh, I don't have my happy time <laughs> watching Adam Scott <laughs> cry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mourn oh, the death of boy. his wife or whatever. You know what, though? That show is well made and it's well acted. Yes. And it's tense. And it's so beautifully shot. It is. You watch it and you're like, ah, I'm in good hands. I'm in good hands. You really are. I mean, the show's not on, but like for a brief period of time in like late March, I got the wonderful present of watching Atlanta on a Thursday and then watching Severance on Friday. And that was like a wonderful experience that. (laughs) Yeah, it was like two weeks. I think it was like a two-week <laughs> Where overlap. Where things were okay. Life was so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Ukraine was being invaded, but hey, two good <laughs> shows on two days back to back, you know? You know what? You got to find your joy where you can, okay? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. These days, that's what you got to do. Co-sign that for sure. There you go. I have no shame at all in finding joy in those two shows. Hell yeah. Atlanta's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you watched any of the third season? Not yet, man. Oh, that's right. Okay. That's right. Are you... You didn't watch the second season either, did you? No, I've seen season two. Season two okay, is incredible. Okay. I, I just, I'm, I might just not be a week to week guy anymore, man. You really aren't, and uh, I sort of, I judge you for that, right? I know. I you judge do. you for that. Yeah. Because <laughs> with you just uh, want to main. No, no, no. You just want to mainline <laughs> the whole show. Just have it downloaded into your brain, a la The Matrix, and like not experience the ups and the downs that the rest of us are going through you're like no 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 no. just let me shove this whole thing into my right. face it's right like i want to eat an entire birthday cake without chewing it it's like are you even gonna taste it that no, way you're it's not. just gonna no, exactly. get you're not crushed gonna in your esophagus yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you're like no just let me mm-hmm. walk around with this cake lodged in my throat <laughs> Whatever, man. I mean, I can I can dole it out. I don't have to, like, binge it at such a rate. I can do, you know, two, three episodes a day, maybe take a day off, then come back. I'm, I'm pretty good about, like, self-medicating with my TV. I really mm. am. All right. But I just, I don't know. The week-to-week thing, I, I don't think I can do it. Uh, the, one, the one example where it was so good that I really am glad you got me on the week-to-week train was Succession because that was a show Mm -hmm. where every episode is so self-contained and so shocking and hilarious and incredible that you really want that live feed reaction play-by-play going on. You do. That's fair. Speaking of that, man, Josh got me to watch the Oscars, which I hadn't watched live in five, six years maybe since the last time I saw it. And I I didn't watch them regularly before that either. Right. But like literally the last Oscars that I had seen was in 2016 or the 2017 ceremony where they accidentally gave Best Picture to La La Land. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then this was the next Oscars I watched. Oh, dude, you you need to... Oh, go ahead. I know. Anytime I watch, it's just ultra cursed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just... (laughs) 
they're not sparing the butter when they're spreading that curse on no them. not it at was all. wild you know what that means right you just have to start watching it for the rest of us so that we're not bored exactly so that they're actually interesting yeah 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 there you go the insane thing about it dude is that ceremony was a mess before the slap the slap actually saved that oscars from being just talked about as what a terrible ceremony what a fiasco this was top to bottom horribly mm-hmm. produced a combination of bad hosting bits and then also like digital short style mm-hmm. videos mm-hmm. that were cut in there's like one of Wanda Sykes taking a tour of the Academy Museum and basically just making fun of it the whole time. Why is this in here? <laughs> For one thing, none of us are able to visit this place. Right. And also no you're just walking around being like, I don't give a shit about any of this. <laughs> and you shouldn't either. Right, exactly. It's like the worst advertisement for it you could yeah. possibly imagine. <laughs> I didn't watch it at all. And I haven't watched since maybe 2012 or 2013. Yeah, and I'm sure. What a what a weight off your mind. I mean, I, for the longest time, was so happy to just wait for the list of winners to get posted. And I could look at it and I'd be yep. like, yep, seems bad. Okay, cool. Moving on. And I could just exorcise myself of all of that frustration, you know, yep. of watching live as terrible choices were made. <laughs> and they just keep falling for the same shit over and over again, man. Oof. There was another thing. Um, two of my favorite actors who are this amazing power couple, Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst, mm-hmm. they both lost their Oscars. And then Amy Schumer had this bit where she was talking about seat fillers at the Oscars, like people who would sit and save the seats of celebrities while they were like at the bar or in the bathroom or whatever. And she pretended that Kirsten Dunst was a seat filler and then was just like sitting down and insulting her and shit. And Jesse Plemons was obviously upset by this. That's so and they had both just lost their awards. <laughs> and I just felt so bad for them both. It's like a moment that no one is talking about at all because, right. you know, everything pre-slap was just yeah. obliterated from memory. Yeah, what a terrible show. I was just like, they should really just stop doing this. I think so. I think it's an award show that would go away and no one would miss it. Yeah, and they're just so bad at what they're purporting to do. Make people excited about movies as an art form, as an industry, as all of it. I think the Grammys has a leg up on the Oscars, frankly, because even if you don't necessarily like the performers or you don't agree with who's getting awarded, it's at least a spectacle. It might not be the spectacle you want to see, but it is at least a spectacle. It's a live performance show, and the only elements of live performance that they shoehorn into the Oscars are music-based, and they don't really have anything to do with the films. So that's fine, but like, yeah, the Grammys do it so much better anyway, Mm -hmm. so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. You watch, um, you gonna watch Moon Knight at all? I've watched the first two episodes and. Weren't feeling it? I- I'll hate watch it. Oh, probably. it's one of those. It is. It's a little iron fisty. Oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> not quite there. It's not quite there yet. It's not quite yet. an iron fisting. It's, yeah. it's not quite there yet. Okay. Might it reach that level? It- it's possible. This is one of these uh, productions that you watch and you say to yourself, I'm not sure that X actor can save what's going on here. Yeah. And the thing is, is that it has two really, really good actors who have, you know, performed and delivered performances that are standouts in their 
each of their respective careers. Sure. But this right here together just does not. I'm just like, nah. The material it's, isn't there. It's not there. Yeah. Man, I. Oh. Is Isaac, is he kind of like doing a Pacino thing where he's like. Pass, I think. Can I come yeah. in and make mm-hmm. something mediocre a little bit better by being a weirdo? I think he is. Yeah. And I don't really feel like he has that same energy or that same partnership coming from Ethan Hawke. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ethan Hawke has too much integrity, even though he does garbage as well. It's so funny. It's so weird. He's like, you're showing up for some crappy C-grade genre thing, and he's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to underplay this. I'm going to be the concerned father in this one. (laughs) Yep. What are you doing, my guy? Bro. (laughs) So strange. Like, what a great pairing, though. Like, you should... Yeah. Ideally, this is like, oh, this would be dynamite on screen, and then you're just kind of like, nah... They have a similar intensity. You can really see the two of them coming in and working off each other well, you know? Mm-hmm. Isaac would make uh, Hawk just a little goofier, and Hawk would bring up that real uh, verisimilitude that Oscar Isaac is so capable of, too. Yeah. You could see them just, like, feeding off each other, and yeah. instead it's just not really there. It's huh? just not. It's not there yeah. at all. Ugh. Well, I haven't seen it because I've been watching the live action Cowboy Bebop. Oh, that's no. what I've been struggling. Okay. Are through. we doing this? Are we? Do- we might <laughs> have, as well. Have right? you? Have you? I have watched you, the first episode. You watched the first episode. I did. Yeah, I did. I'm... Yeah, we should probably get it out of the way and talk about it today because I know to? you're not gonna watch <laughs> any more of it. All right. Yeah. So we'll okay. No, let's let's just save go. it for next week. Let's save okay. it for next week. All right. Yeah, we will. I want to save our takes. I want to yeah. save our takes because All I right. do have takes. I think oh, there's I, a I lot to talk about. I yeah. do too. Yeah. Yeah. I, oof. All right. All right okay. All right. I'm, right. I'm going to get some coffee. Oh, okay. Before you do the intro. Sorry. Sorry. Sure. Sorry. Sorry. Was nope, there was there good. anything else you wanted to, to talk no. about? Anything anything that's been weighing on you in the pop culture sphere? I don't think so. <laughs> Never mind all the other shit that's been weighing yeah, I know. on us. No. I, I don't think so. Just the psychic torment of being alive in 2022. <laughs> No, I got nothing. All right, that's fine. Yeah, here we are, podcasting to y'all from the darkest timeline. Let's get it going. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. We are so happy to have you with us. This is a podcast. So we're just so we happy. Extra happy. Can't y'all. you tell oh. how happy I am right now? All of you listeners out there, you are just a shot of antidepressants right to the dome for us. Absolutely. All, all, all of six you. of you. All six of you. Exactly. Thank you so much. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. It really doesn't. That's how much we love you guys. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Finn Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host, Mr. Alex Sinesi. Dude, how's it doing? (laughs) You didn't sweat that one, did you? It's doing? It's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, I didn't expect that. How's it doing? I feel like you just kind of slid into a couple different <laughs> things. Like, yeah, uh huh. It could have been like how it do, or it could have been how's no, 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 it going. No, 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 no. I, I wanted to, I wanted to come in with something fresh, something to <laughs> slide in there. Yeah, it was unexpected. How's it doing? So today yeah, we're, we're go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. God damn it! <laughs> today we're talking. Start this shit! What the fuck? <laughs> oh boy. So today we are talking about episodes 6 through 10 of Cowboy Bebop. Another five uh, really good episodes. They've kind of got a theme this time around, I think. 
And I think that'll be something that we talk about a little bit later. Yeah, man, how'd they hit you? Yeah, yeah, I, I loved your note. I guess the way I would put it to just sort of tie in with the the musicality of the overall show, and music is something I want to talk about a lot today, but uh, these are sort of episodes in a minor key is the way that I would put it. After okay. that first batch of five, that first session, that first DVD that's so bright and poppy and filled with adventure and then kind of ended on a dark note, mm-hmm. this one picks up definitely in a place of sadness and personal loss and i mean that's kind of what you were you were talking about yeah i mean that's the sense that i got like we watched the pilot we talked about the pilot last recording and just how dark it was tonally how thematically it is yeah it's it's fairly upsetting and then i felt like the next four episodes were fairly lighthearted or um somewhat funny and i think we talked about the reasons why Whereas I feel like, yeah, returning to 6 through 10, tonally, again, just kind of shifts back towards being a little bit more adult, a little bit more uh, heavy, with the exception of maybe jamming with Edward. And that's only briefly. Even then, like I, th- I feel like the, the theme of that episode is pretty heavy. Yeah, it's, it's about loss and loneliness. Mm-hmm. It's disguised in a cheerful, hyperactive shell, but it, it is about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure dude we gotta talk about yoko kano of course because i mean the fact that we didn't talk about tank last time i mean we had a lot to get into we were super excited to jump in but tank i mean we did an are you current recently where you posed the question to me what are the great tv openings of all time Mm -hmm. and i think my brain just probably wasn't on anime, but I am so remiss to have not mentioned Tank. Tank. Yep. Mm-hmm. This is the unskippable intro. It is. This is the intro that is so amazing, that is so perfectly calibrated to get you in the headspace for the show that follows, that yep. is so addictive to watch. Yep. The music is so fucking amazing. Yep. I watch it every time. I do Dude, too. I, I never I, skip it. I can't skip I can't it. Sk- and I it's think so it, good. I remember you talking about The Sopranos and how that has like a Pavlovian sort of response for you. Yes. And I think yes. this, I think this show is the number one. I think this is the all-time great. Like you can't top this. Not only is it just like a blistering piece of music that would be as fun to listen to independently of like the opening credit sequence. Oh yeah. But when it's combined with the visuals. It's like fireworks going off, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. just like pop art perfection. Every single image is so fucking cool. The way that it just abstracts the characters out into like silhouettes and shapes mm-hmm. that instantly feel iconic. You're just like, this is the best, yeah. man. This is so good. Yep. And uh, we won't get into it too much, but um, the live action series that debuted and then was swiftly canceled on Netflix slavishly recreates Mm -hmm. that exact sequence in live action and it's just fascinating to see how with the same piece of music and very similar composition of all the images it actually doesn't work yeah you know yeah it's so strange it's very strange but i think so much of that comes down to like the timing of animation animation is so fast animation you're able Mm -hmm. to process an image so quickly because there's nothing in the frame to distract you from the exact 
icon, the exact piece of imagery, and uh, it's masterful. But yeah. so much of it has to do with the brilliance of Yoko Kano, who I, I just really wanted to talk about this yeah. week. Yeah, She composed all the music for Cowboy Bebop. She actually created a band called Seatbelts yep. that was made up of musicians from all over the world. She just kind of like picked and choose the sort of expert level people from every like genre that she was interested in because this music just it it covers musical history it covers dozens of genres it's unbelievable. have you listened to some of their music just like independent of uh the bebop oh, yeah. score it's yeah, fantastic yeah i've been jamming on it for you know going on two decades uh, it's now it's so man. good I mean, it's so i good. only listened to it oh. within the last year oh yeah wow. so i'm a newbie to it i'm just like this yeah. is like blowing my hair back Oh, that's so awesome, man. It is. It, there's such a, you just get the sense of like the joy of performance yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. And and Kano, I read this really cool interview with her where she talked about how she grew up performing like hymnals and she learned how to transcribe sheet music at a really young age. And she was just so in on music theory. And it wasn't until she got to college that she started hearing people play music outside of like very pre-established genres she started to hear like someone do like a jazz drumming solo and that just blew her mind she yeah. was like oh you can just play you can whatever just riff. you want yeah yeah she was like yeah i started writing my own things and i was just like i just want to write something that will be so exciting you know i want to write something that's actually cool that makes my blood boil and and she just went from there she was actually hired to do a video game score while she was still in college. Wow. Like she'd become so renowned as a, a as a composer, as a person known for music theory. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> while she was an undergrad, that she uh, did the music for this game. It's called uh, Nobunaga's Revenge. It was like a very early real-time strategy game that okay. was on PC, and then I think it got ported to like the NES and the Mega Drive or something. It sounds familiar, to be honest with you. Yeah, I shouldn't yeah. know that, but I actually am familiar with that title. Right. That series floated around for a while. I think it actually got pretty popular for like a really early strategy series. But that got her composing for anime and for commercials and things like that. And pretty quickly into her career, she linked up with Watanabe to do Macross Plus, which uh, we talked about a little bit last week. I just wanted to add one thing that I thought was really cool, which is uh, she talked about how she really felt like she could get into and embody the character of Sharon Apple, who was this pop star AI that the plot sort of centers around, who is literally using her music to hypnotize people and wants to take over the world. And she was talking about how she wanted to Mm. compose music that could be used as a sonic weapon. Yes. (laughs) That she literally wanted to break people's minds with music. Mm -hmm. And she started getting letters from people talking about how they would join the military after listening to her music or like enter the suicidal depression. So she accomplished this right she weaponized music she was like i i became slightly frightened of my power at that point i mean she's a prodigy she is clearly like a musical savant without a doubt right it's incredible absolutely and speaking of savant that's such an interesting phrase to use because watanabe 
has said that the character of Ed is based on the way that Kano acts. Mm -hmm. And you very much get the sense that people meet her and they're like, either she was extremely quiet and reserved or she was like, off the walls a, a, a demon yeah, mm-hmm. like yeah. off the walls yeah. acting so hyperactive and so intense and i'm just i'm fascinated with her i mean she's an ex- extremely private person she really hasn't let many details of her personal life out ever which i'm like awesome if mm-hmm. you can like swing that i think that's so good for anyone who's in the public eye at all really but it's to the extent that she didn't admit that she was the lead vocalist on most of her music until like 2009. Wow. Wow. A, a long time in. It, yeah. Over 10 years yeah. since the end of Cowboy At least Bob. a decade. Yeah. yeah. Did she do the music for the Netflix reboot? She did. She did? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I think a lot of them are re-recorded okay. for the TV show, but mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it is the original Cowboy Bebop tracks. And then there's new stuff added into um, more like electronic tracks yeah. than before, I okay. think. But yeah, but she did all the music for that as well. And okay. it's definitely one of the best things about that show that we got some more Kano tracks out of it. You proposed an interesting question, which was, what are your three favorite Bebop tracks? Oh, yeah. It got me thinking. Yeah. So like, yeah, what are yours? Oh, man. Okay, so one of them comes up in this batch of episodes. I mean... Tank is kind of a given. Yeah. I won't even list Tank. We we love Tank so oh, much. It's okay, unbelievable. Yeah. All right, I counted I, it, but I'm, go ahead. I'm going to do three others. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, just to mix it up a bit. Uh, one that I really love, part of it, it's not just the song itself. It's the way that it's integrated into this show. This is such a key part of it, too, is that Kano says she loves to write and compose her music before storyboards are even done. Wow. Like, very early in the development process of an anime. She wants to just, like, have basic character ideas, a Mm -hmm. few conceptual images, and then just go and, like, write tracks, give them over to the creators and say, do with them what you will. And I think that's so key to Cowboy Bebop because all of this music is essentially being generated by one woman, and yet you listen to the score... It not score the soundtrack of the show as it's going on and it feels like they are taking 50 years worth of pop music and chopping it up and re-editing it into the show taking these existing pieces of music and using them to their own purposes and that i think comes from the way that she composes how crazy is it that she's doing this before storyboards are even like drafted or created i mean it's insane but it seems like and yet to have the music sync so well Ugh. Yes. With the actual, like, what's going on in scene. That, to me, is impressive. I think the way that Watanabe deploys it is so beautifully done, too, because he'll he'll oftentimes pick a song where you're like, that song is totally incongruous with this moment, and it makes it, it, makes so, it so much more powerful. memorable. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right. And for that exact reason, I have to go with Elm as one of my favorite tracks, oh. which is the European folk style track that appears at the end of Ganymede Elegy during that, you know, chase between the the boat and Jet's hammerhead. Yep. And it's this finger pick mandolin or it almost sounds like a lute or something and the guy's singing in this old world European style it really sounds like a bard from medieval times singing like uh, a sort of a, a upbeat dirge almost and it's such a strange thing recontextualized over like 
this spaceship darting between buildings right. over an ocean world, you know, Ganymede that's been terraformed into an ocean. I don't know why, but it just, it sticks in my head so much. Just, it, it's such an indelible combination of audio and visual. Yeah. So yeah, that one definitely jumped out to me. Another one that I really feel like doesn't get enough love I'm probably going to mangle the pronunciation on this because it's very strange. I think it's a combination of French and Japanese, but uh-huh. it's um, Wokui Non Coin or Non Coin. Okay. It's this really cute kind of French pop with an electronic beat that plays when Faye and Ed are returning to the bebop in the episode where Ed decides to Decides leave. to leave, yeah. That's a good song. It's got this really like sad soulful mm-hmm. vocal which comes from uh Aoi Tada the uh Japanese voice actress who plays Ed and her delivery is incredible it's mm-hmm. it's sad but childlike it has this yearning to it the song starts as being about a lost puppy that she's like mourning and then it turns into this sort of like odd sexual thing it it seems like it's talking almost about an orgy or some sexual encounter where she was like with a bunch of different partners but there was one person in particular that she wanted to be with but that she couldn't that is that caught yeah. me off guard yeah, yeah. <laughs> you weren't i'm processing all that. i'm processing that <laughs> but um it's it's a real like earworm of a track it's a track that's so I don't know. There's something bizarrely catchy about it. And I love that down-tempo French pop kind of a sound that it's got going on, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that one I, I wanted to shout out. And then my favorite, probably even over Tank, over the Real Folk Blues, over all the, like, really famous tracks. But the one I got to put at number one is Space Line. Okay, so you can't say too much more about that because I also okay. have Space Line. Yeah, I'll yeah. let you take it away on Space Line because okay. what a track. I know, oh, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. It's so, yeah. I mean, okay, so here we go. So these are my yeah. top three. Heck, yeah. I say Tank is number one. It's undeniable. Undeniable. Yeah. It's just like, it's like off of a hot frying pan, that song. Yes, right? that is perfect. Yes. Like you can still see the steam coming off of this song it's that powerful that skillet um, is yeah just exactly steaming it, it was exactly. on fire like five seconds mm-hmm. ago yeah yeah anyway mm-hmm. yeah nothing more i can say about that song um the other ones that i enjoy are really like slow mid-tempo like slower songs yeah i'm a sucker for road to the west that shows up at the end of the pilot oh yeah again because of the incongruity there which is you have this chase that's happening and then I think it's also used twice. It's used twice, once in the pilot, and then I think it's used again maybe in the second-to-last episode or the final mm-hmm. episode. I think it's mm-hmm. the second-to-last one. Um, and both times it's used against what is being depicted yeah. on screen. It's almost always a dogfight or a chase scene. And instead it's like this really somber, melancholy song with an alto sax that's just like blowing it away, like it's just softly just working its way into like this ridiculously beautiful crescendo um, with like a synthesizer wave kind of going on in the background. And that's about it. I think this song works because of what's happening on screen. And it has like this sense of maybe desperation and sadness behind it. And I specifically remember 
hearing it as uh what is it katarina i think katarina. is the kid yeah right before she's about to die and just thinking like man like this is about to be really sad yeah it's a perfect like noir noir mm-hmm. it is it thank really you yeah that's the word i'm looking for that sense of alienation and emptiness and and yeah no yeah. like if you were to take that song and lay it over any noir film, it works. Yes. Just the totally. alto sax is just perfect, like those opening few notes. It's it's amazing. And then, yeah, like Space Lion. Yeah. Space Lion has you contemplating your existence as you're listening to that song. That is how hard it hits. Two sax-heavy tracks, I know, I man. Say. Like, they just, They're like, incredible. They are incredible. No like, you're just... Yeah. Like that's the most I can say about that song is that you just listen to it and you just go like, what am I doing on this planet right now? Yeah, it makes you have like an existential crisis. Yeah, there's something in Space Lion too. It nails that sense of urban isolation. I will say it's it's that sense of being in this cold, unforgiving sort of a concrete world, and yet having like human yearning and how that. <laughs> is incongruous with your surroundings you know (laughs) it's like it's yearning it is maybe even nostalgia and even like like a lot of a heavy dose of regret in that song there is a lot of regret in that song it's just one of the great jazz tracks i've ever heard it honestly is i mean i don't know that much about jazz and i'm sure some people would cry foul but i mean it's it's amazing yeah and the way it's deployed too across jupiter jazz which are two of my favorite episodes. Yeah, Jupiter Jazz is great. Uh, I mean, the fact that it's laid over this snowy setting, it's so perfect for that, where you get that sort of, you feel that saxophone just coming through like a chill in the air, and it's so evocative. Oh, man. And then at the end, where it sort of breaks into this, this beat, and it has these really interesting vocals. It sounds like an African choir almost. It, like, builds to this crescendo that you're not expecting at all that's yeah. just so powerful. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny, we're talking about the music, and we talked about Tank, but I also feel like the song that goes over the, the credits, the end credits. Oh, that, the real folk blues. The real yeah, folk blues. Thank you. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That one also just sort of, like, that gets me as well. And I think it's because, again, it's my own, like, Pavlovian response to, like, seeing Seal Space Cowboy at the end of, like, every episode. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When CU Space Cowboy comes up, it just it puts that perfect note on it where it's like kind of a jokey mm-hmm. farewell, but there's so much sadness, so much dramatic weight laid on right ahead of it that it it just hits so right every time. It does. Oh man, I gotta we gotta stop talking about the Netflix version, but I will <laughs> say one thing, which is that the Netflix show ends every single episode with a cliffhanger sting scene involving Vicious and Julia and then it says see you space cowboy that doesn't work. and it no. doesn't work no. it sounds like it's talking about Vicious every time <laughs> which makes no sense at that's all. weird as opposed to ending on the regret and existential ennui of our main character exactly it's just this random phrase that pops in like a to be continued after the villain has like a mustache twirling scene it's so wrong Uh, all right yeah we can't tell we've got to save that for the next one we got to save it yeah we can't but uh yeah yeah i mean this music 
I would put it up there as some of the greatest music ever composed for television. Absolutely. I, I can't think of that many examples, especially, you know, uh, soundtracks slash scores that cover such a gamut of genre. It, it's pretty insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of funny. Yoko Kano did the music for this anime right before Cowboy Bebop that Watanabe also worked on a little bit called A Vision of Escaflone, which was this sort of steampunk medieval mech anime. And it's okay. It's very like, it's sort of an anime cheeseburger in that it's a silly show about a princess who's in peril and like giant robots that can turn into dragons. But it's just a little better done than you would expect from that. But Kano's music is so expansive. And I just remember the intertitle that they put during the commercial break where you just get the the show's show's title title. and a little piece of animation just to sort of separate the two halves of the episode um the one on escaflone had a like a sitar line on it (laughs) which doesn't really make any sense in the context of european medieval fantasy and i was immediately like oh her musical tastes are too broad for this show i mean (laughs) Her music is too. Her musical taste is too diverse to be like put in one genre. She she can't be contained. She cannot Mm-mm. be bound by any TV no. show. And that's why Cowboy Bebop was kind of the perfect context for her. This show that is mashing together so many genres. so many styles, yeah. so many tropes, so many different aesthetics, all like colliding in a frenzy. Yeah, this is this is the place where her potential could be realized, and you can't really imagine another show that could hit the same way. I agree. Yeah. So we want to talk about the episodes? Yeah, yeah. let's get into it. Yes, yeah, so sure. this is, again, episodes 6 through 10. We had, what do we have here? We've got Sympathy for the Devil, which picks up, I think, like, what, a little while after the previous episode yeah the time the time jump between is, episodes are very nebulous. Very nebulous you really can't get into that all we know is that spike has like fully recovered from his encounter with vicious he's no longer injured he's back on uh bounty hunting duty and so spike and jet they're following the trail of a criminal um, and actually this is one of my favorite episodes i really like oh, yeah. this one yeah and so, yeah, they realize that their bounty is a mysterious musician who actually appears decades younger than his chronological age. So this character that they're following, that they're tracking down, is probably in his, what, 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe even his 80s. Actually, no, he's in like, he's like 80, he's like years, 80 old. years old. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what am I getting at? Um, but he looks like he's 12. So basically, Spike and Jet, they develop a weapon um, to successfully terminate this person with extreme prejudice, which they do. And yeah, that's the end of the episode. They are able yeah. to. Our hero shoots a kid in the head twice, yes. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not once, but twice yeah. in this episode. It's wild. And I think is this the first episode that talks about the Hypergate disaster? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it was alluded to very, very obliquely in previous episodes, but this is the one where they get into okay. it. Okay, it's pretty interesting to be like, oh, there was this gigantic world-defining tragedy that. They're all, like, living in the fallout of, basically. Yeah. It's so strange, dude, how this show premiered in September 2001 mm-hmm. in the U.S. I mean, it was produced in 1998, mm-hmm. but it's so odd how it reflects 9-11. Yeah. I mean, Sympathy for the Devil is the first episode that wasn't aired during the original run yeah. of Cowboy Bebop. I get it. Because of some of the imagery. I mean, 
the man falling out of the window, yep. of course. But I think also when when rises up, transformed, and his parents charred bodies are surrounding him trying to protect yeah. him it's such a disturbing image that really really sticks with me out of everything from this show yeah. it's one of the most indelible images i'd say i'd say yeah that one i mean i'm jumping ahead but i think the ending yeah. of that episode with uh, spike tossing the harmonica into the air and it's very evocative of 2001 space odyssey like that one gets me oh, every yeah. single time yeah and just the ending of that episode i think is great yeah, let's see. So they've also... The way it calls forward to the end of the, the show. The end of the show, of course, yeah. Which we won't mm-hmm. get into too much. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yep. yeah. I, I don't even know if everyone knew what was being referenced yeah. or called forward to at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure Watanabe did. Yeah. But uh, yeah. It hits, though. So yeah, so we had mm-hmm. Sympathy for the Devil. The next episode is uh, Heavy Metal Queen. Oh, I do just want to say well, one more thing about episode six, yeah. which is that I do think that you know, even though like session one is lighter, I think episode five started to get a little bit darker, a little uh, bit yeah. more mature. Mm-hmm. And then the way that that led into six, which I feel like is one of the darkest episodes of the entire show, mm-hmm. it feels like the confidence they had from Ballad of Fallen Angels just like carried over into Sympathy for the Devil. And they're like, let's push the tone of this as far as we can into something really nightmarish. And it also carries on with teasing us of Spike's backstory by opening up with his artificial eye being created and uh, doing that with a bunch of surreal imagery. So I I just thought it was interesting how they were playing with the form and how each time they were like, oh, well, we could successfully push the tone in this direction, so let's see how far we can push it. I also think it's incredible that they, they don't ever feel the need to fully flesh out anyone's backstory in completion like you always get hints of things and yet there's still like a fair amount of mystery around each of these characters which i think is so it's better that way and i like it i think it works specifically for this show perhaps other ones not so much but yeah this show specifically i think the the hint of mystery there with each of the characters um uh, serves the show pretty well it's something I'm not gonna rant about the like current state of pop culture. Oh no! He's one of my it. least favorite oh, no. things is how prequel obsessed we've become, yeah. and how so many franchises are like, "Oh, let's create the prequel that backs us into where this character was at the start of the movie that we all like," and. The whole movie is just the process of a blank slate becoming a somewhat interesting character. And it's like, no, the good thing to do is to start the story with them already at the most interesting point in their development. And that's exactly what Cowboy Bebop does. It gives you these characters who are fascinating and it just gives you these like little wisps and flickers of backstory and that's that's enough because it's like you're already fascinated with them in the moment and you just get that hint of greater richness yeah. as opposed to having some story that has to like dramatically reverse engineer itself to get to the point where oh now we recognize the character for what yeah. they are yeah, you know no it's never it's never that compelling no, not at all so we had the next episode, which is Heavy Metal Queen, which I actually like yeah. because of specifically because of the music choices made in this one. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. Um, so you get Spike and Jet again. They're teaming up. Faye returns to work with them on this specific bounty in order to catch a, a saboteur, a um, explosives maker and then distributor. 
a weird guy who bizarrely, bizarrely. is a caricature of Woody Allen. It really is. It's so strange. It feels kind of like an odd tribute that Watanabe is doing. Right. But I I will just say that it was very enjoyable to see his bloated mm-hmm. and twisted, twisted corpse. corpse at the yes. end after he decompresses. Yes, it's so great. Oh, my God. So, yeah, during their search, Spike, uh, he meets the gruff cargo hauler who goes by the name VT. She has a particular distaste for bounty hunters. Um, however, that sort of changes when she joins up with Spike and Faye to hunt for this felon, and uh, they barely escape with their lives. The bounty is lost once again. Um, however, Spike wins over VT, um, and she decides that the, uh, the Bebop gang, are, they're all right with her. Yeah, it's an interesting episode. It feels like a like a monster of the week, a bounty of the week type oh, episode. Totally yeah, is. but it works though. Like it's got its own like little charm to it. And I think the interesting twist at the end, where you find out that this woman is, you know, still dealing with like the grief of like the loss of her husband, is it, I think it works. Yeah, VT's a cool. She's a great character. character. Love her. And it's so great that they don't bring so many of these characters back yeah. that you get all of this richness in a single episode and then it's just like yeah and we're just moving on mm-hmm. and it makes the the universe of the show feel so expansive Absolutely. i love that we just make this short pit stop to this asteroid where there are all of these space truckers hauling these really awesome like triangular containers i know it looks so cool they look so rad yeah 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 yeah. and uh we just we just stop off here for one brief encounter and then they're they're on the move again to different planets to different situations and yeah it just makes it feel so so big and so creative one of the things i do like about this show is yeah i i said this last time but like the world building on the show is just like top notch just like what you said like they do such a great job creating environments making them you know impactful and then never coming back to them ever again Mm -hmm. i think there's an episode and coming up and it's just i it's the chess master episode where they're just sort of like exploring like a loosely like barely populated outer space colony that's just filled with like junkies and like dispossessed and displaced people that's all that it is Mm -hmm. that episode it it works man like oh it's really really good yeah but anyway all these places stick in your mind so so strong because of that and and the way that they combine with the music yeah for sure for sure this episode has a some really great just sort of an awesome uh little action beat where Spike misses his chance to grab VT's hand when he's floating in zero gravity and he falls back and he seems to just like float out into outer space and you're like oh he's he's dead, dead. <laughs> what? Yeah. and he pulls out his gun and fires his gun and uses that as propulsion to like spring off of another object and get back to her and it's just like a little example of how even you know in a moment that didn't need it they can just throw in some incredibly creative action just for a single beat yeah. and it's so good yeah having traveled quite a bit as a young person yeah the way in which they introduce settings and then leave them um yeah that hits for me for certain so yeah on to the next episode which is waltz for venus another another kind of like it feels like again the bounty of the week type episode um where you've got spike being pulled into this young man's story so you've got this excitable young guy whose name is rocco who is asking spike for like mentorship in martial arts what Spike does not know is that this young guy 
is in possession of a valuable treatment that he hopes is going to cure his blind sister. He's on the run. There are criminals, a, a criminal organization um, that is chasing after him. There's a bloody shootout, and although Rocco is able to uh, deliver this treatment to his sister, um, he ultimately loses his life in the process. Um, and I think this one, you know, I might take this back. This one might be sort of like a Bounty of the Week type type episode, but it does remind me of how Spike is often haunted by the losses that he's experienced in his life. Um, yes. And so, yeah, I, mean, I take that back about Waltz for Venus. It's a good one, and it takes place on Venus. And it's great. Oh, which is so, another amazing environment. Yeah. Like the idea of floating mosques that have been terraformed on their undersides with plants yep. that, are, that are giving the planet an atmosphere. It's just really an indelible, very, very unusual environment that uh, they came up with for it. Yeah, it's so cool. I, I like this episode a lot, too. I mean, I, I agree with you that it it really hits on that theme that the show does so well of just delivering a tragedy in miniature and having all of that emotional weight just be impressed upon our main characters. Yep. And you just know that, you know, they're moving on at the end. They don't make a big deal about it. They don't talk about how they're feeling at all. But you just know that, yeah, this is another loss that's weighing on Spike. And the way that it happens where Roko just gets shot when when you're not expecting it and then the plant that contains the treatment for his sister like dies and withers yeah. in front of him. Mm-hmm. It's such a crushing moment. Yeah. And as a character, I think he sort of was designed and was performed in both the Japanese and the English to be kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it works so well to like sneak up on you with this. This guy's kind of a pest who Spike doesn't want to deal with. And yet he like extends that little bit of kindness to him just just a little bit of mentorship and you realize that even that is too much of a buy-in for him and that he's made himself vulnerable when things go so horribly, so horribly wrong. wrong so yeah. wrong oh it's a great episode so yeah that gets followed up with jamming with edward um, which is an episode that we just kind of mentioned a little while ago this is where you get like the, the bebop family together right this is ein yeah. this is Faye. we've got jet We've got Spike, and now we add in Edward, um, who is an interesting character. A character that would not appear in any any other other genre. It's so funny how it's like, this show has been so separate from the typical anime aesthetics for so long. And then you get the most intense, energetic, goofy anime Mm -hmm. aesthetics poured into this one character. Who shows up. Yeah. It's very jarring. Yes. I will say. The first time I watched the show, it, it was a long time where I was like, <laughs> feels like a different how show. I feel about yes, Edward. Exactly. This is a lot, and it's really different. Okay, so let me just summarize and then we'll just talk yeah. about Edward. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, jamming with Edward, uh, again, this one feels more like it's a Bounty of the Week episode where you've got the surface of the earth is being scarred horribly by an unknown sort of like a vandal. And this person is leaving like pictograms. They sort of look like crop circles out in the middle oh, of they're, nowhere. Um, they're Nazca lines, actually, which are a real thing that exists in South America. Yep, that were that's right. Produced in, I'm not even sure when, I think it was the time of the Mayan Empire that these were made. And the strange thing about them is, 
I mean, you can view them from like nearby hills and things and sort of get an impression of the shapes. But really, the best way to get a perspective on them is to be like 10,000 feet overhead yeah. on them, yeah. which has always made them this sort of a fascinating mystery where it's like, why would people in that time create something that is best viewed from space right. you know but they did <laughs> they did and they've existed for so long and so the plot sort of revolves around this satellite that's gone rogue and has missed the nazca lines because they were wiped out because the earth is now being constantly pelted with asteroids after the gate accident and is basically uninhabitable like the only people who live on earth live on they live underground that's right so yeah. the satellite is recreating the nazca lines itself so yeah so the vandal that they find is basically an ai program and they find this program with the help of radical edward who's yeah. like a legendary hacker and I, I love that sequence where you know spike is like traversing the Earth's surface, like looking for Edward, and everyone is giving him a different. Oh no, it's Jet. Is it Jet? It's okay, Jet. yeah, 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 right, yeah, right. Yeah. And everyone is giving him a different answer. Oh, Edward is like you know a fifty-year-old man who lives in like the basement <laughs> of like you know this expansive building, or like oh, Edward mm-hmm. once like you know hacked the ISSP and like got away with like millions of blah 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 blah. Right. Edward is a a, a Robin Hood figure by this point. They have their own legend. Um, which is really, really cool. Accepting the first description, it's a little different in the English translation. They they switch it up. But in the Japanese, the way that Edward is described to Jet by various people is as a child, a girl, or a gay alien, <laughs> which may actually... <laughs> they all work. All of those together might just describe they all Edward. Work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, boy. So, All right. By the end of the episode, the Bebop is hosting two men and, much to Spike's distress, a dog, a woman, and a child. (laughs) He specifically said he did not want any of those three aboard the Bebop, and now he has to deal with them. It's a really funny moment, him being that frustrated (laughs) about it, and you being like, oh, yeah, this is a nightmare (laughs) ship for him now. This is exactly not the vibe Uh, he wanted. Not at all. He wanted to practice his Jeet Kune Do in silence (laughs) while smoking cigarettes, and now he has all these characters just busting up his zen. He is so upset. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah, like, Edward, uh, I think Edward grew on me as I watched the show. Do you think that Watanabe created Edward in mind with the idea of them being perhaps like gender fluid or gender non-binary? I I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Especially looking back on it or possibly not even in his mind for Edward to be transgender in particular, but there's definitely a, there's definitely a a sense of like queerness uh, with Edward that I think is there to not be made fun of or anything right, like that. Right. It's more sort of an integral part of who they are. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting. Yeah, there are little hints all over it, like the way that Edward sort of surreptitiously flirts with Faye in ways that seem innocent. Mm-hmm. You definitely get a, a sense that, yeah, there's more going on there. I do think it's interesting just that, yeah, for for this time and for anime where oftentimes like gay characters would be treated as very broad caricatures. Edward does feel like there's 
a bit of that layered in in a much more like subtle and sensitive way mm-hmm. so that that stood out because i mean like even when this within this batch of episodes there are like gay characters who i would say are pretty stereotyped and like kind of dealt with in a a much less sensitive right. way you right right yeah. No, I think that is kind of interesting. Like yeah. the character could be read as like gender fluid or mm-hmm. the character could be read as like somewhat asexual. Edward's just unclassifiable, really. It's hard to really know um, because, yeah, she is absolutely just on her own wavelength. And uh, yeah, it, it was it was definitely one of those things. I think over the course of the first time I watched the show, it really took a while for me to like acclimate to Edward, but she did grow on me. And now at this point, I just love it's it. hilarious. Really it's so yeah, funny. She's so funny. The thing is, like, why is everyone else on this ship so serious mm-hmm. all of the time? Right. And having them be there is just kind of like, oh, yeah, like it makes way more sense um, and is way it's a way more enjoyable way to be in your life. If yeah. you are Edward, if you choose to right. be like Edward, as opposed to being like sense. these other three tortured adults yeah and she comes from arguably the, the worst, worst place experience in the cowboy exactly. bebop universe right? she's from this ruined earth yeah. where nothing can where it's like uninhabitable mm-hmm. you know and she's yeah decided to like give in to the moment and have fun with it even if even if there's like a core of loneliness and nihilism about her it expresses itself through pure joy at everything exactly and the way that she just collects everything she's surrounded by just refuse that's all like just material enjoyment to her in some small quirky way and the way that she like bonds with this ai that is so lonely that is so depressed that is another 2001 parody clearly i mean it's definitely supposed to be like hal having killed everyone on his spaceship and rebooted is now like oh i shouldn't have done that i have no purpose (laughs) yeah exactly i have some regrets (laughs) i went a little too far in some places all right. Uh, yeah. So, wait, what's it? Got the last episode is a uh, Ganymede uh, elegy, which is a good jet centric episode. I think it's the first episode. I think that gives a little bit of Jet's backstory. Yeah. Gives him a little bit more character. Puts a little bit more pain on the character. Um, and we get to see Jet. He connects with his uh, former colleague from the ISSP. I'm um, a former like police officer. And we put him on the trail of his ex-girlfriend, Alyssa, on the moon of Ganymede. And Jet, he realizes that Alyssa's new boyfriend is on the run. The boyfriend is a bounty head. And Jet has to decide between his feelings for, you know, his old flame and uh, potentially ruining her life by, by bringing in this guy who happens to be her boyfriend. So it's, again, that I think that's a good ep- – all of these episodes are enjoyable. And I feel like I have to enjoy them equally. In a weird way, but yeah, they all just—they're uh, all doing such. They're all doing things. such different yeah. things and doing them so well that it's hard for me to say like, "Oh, I prefer this one over this one." I I really cannot say um, which one I enjoy the most. I love this one because it switches up the pace of the show a lot. Mm-hmm. Where most episodes will have a moment of pause and reflection, this episode is very like quiet and sparse throughout, and it so perfectly lines up, I think, with Jet's personality. It's like, oh, this is a jet episode, and it's on a jet tempo from the start. And it's so good. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. This batch of episodes, in my opinion, it's just like a symphony on things like grief, loneliness, loss. Like you have 
a character yeah. in VT who has lost her husband who is dealing with that. You've got Jet who is also dealing with like a breakup and trying to get over that experience um, and really kind of like move on with his life. And then you've got Rocco and, and his sister. They've experienced tragedy, right? Like it's just these two young people who are trying to fend for themselves. And, you know, this world eats this young guy and he's no longer able to be a part of his sister's life. So, yeah, it's just it's all there. Like it's all just swirling together like these themes of losing something that you love and then having to live with that. It's funny, too, how it, again, I mean, it's a silly thing to harp on, like, the way that the DVDs were ordering episodes, where I'm sure part of it was just, like, how many episodes can we fit right, on the disc? Right. And then, like, what can we get away with charging people for it? <laughs> but it is funny how, like the first session, this one also gives you a bunch of standalone adventures, brings the crew together a little more, mm -hmm. in this case, by adding Edward, and then ends on an episode that's very much about like the backstory of a particular character digging in way more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just I'd love to talk about Ganymede Elegy a little bit yeah, more. I just uh, I really love Bo Billingsley's performance in it. He's the English voice actor who plays Jet. Mm -hmm. um, I, he he just has such a rich voice. He just he sounds like a jazz musician who has like been playing for decades and has experienced disappointment mm -hmm. made his living in like smoky clubs and now he's gruff but it's in a it's not at all put on it no. feels very natural that part where he says you know i'm the black dog and when i bite down i don't let go it's so cool because it's on the face of it a very cool line right. but he delivers it not like he's saying something cool at all he delivers it like this is this true. Is, this is <laughs> right, this is a right, fact, right? And this is how how I operate in the world. You know? This is an intractable fact of my life. Right. You know? It may not even be a cool thing about me. It's just part of who I am. Right. Right. Something I can't help. Yeah. Uh, he's great. Yeah. He man. is. I I really I really love him. It's funny. Um, a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I mean. Obviously, there's going to be racist fanboys on the internet talking about anything, but like people were complaining that a black man was cast as Jet mm -hmm. in the live-action Cowboy Bebop. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, Bo Billingsley is an African-American man, right. and <laughs> right. his voice is so like distinctly African-American to me. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, when I watch this show, I just think of Jet as, as being, being black, black. Even yeah. though he's not really drawn that way. I mean, his everyone's skin tones are kind of not super literal where you're like obviously this person is of this race but like i don't know i always just kind of watched the show and thought of him as a light-skinned african-american man yeah which also makes the name jet black kind of a funny <laughs> right, joke right. you know i don't know i i just i always kind of like took it that no way, i know? definitely did as well like it was the first yeah. time i watched it i was like oh no like this character is clearly voiced by a black american that's not yeah. surprising to me. Like whether or not he's actually meant to be read that way uh, is something completely separate. It just works, though. It just works for the yeah, character. exactly. It's exactly the vocal tone that you want, and he has this kind of fatherly, father, very paternal, exactly. Yeah. And I will okay. I this is like the one thing I will say about the reboot. Yeah. Which is, I think that the performance given mm -hmm. by gosh, what is that guy's name? Mustafa Mustafa Shakir. Shakir Thank yeah. you. 
I actually think his performance is about the only one I actually enjoyed. He's, he's, he's solid. By far. He is yeah. solid yeah. And as hell. The writing of every line he has is so bad, mm-hmm. but he's performing. His performance well is great. Yeah. Like that's the only one I watched and I said, "Oh, he actually gets the character." Yeah. And it's working very, very well. And it's like the show is not giving him any Any, help. Not at all. The lines are terrible. His facial hair is so so obviously fake. Yeah. Every bit of the production just dropped the ball except for him. And you're like, yeah, this guy actually captures jet pretty well anyway yep. we won't keep talking no about no no, no, no it, but no. um yeah yeah i uh i really like this episode like i said i love the down tempo vibe of it it has some really interesting like very experimental editing where it just would cut to these flickers of close-ups during his ex-girlfriend's dialogue in one scene yeah it's like wow that is really unusual and yet it works to just create a really the sense that she's still this fragmentary memory in Jet's mind. And it's just something so sophisticated to see that and be like, oh, this animation isn't just trying to like copy the rhythms or the shot composition of live action. It's uh, trying to be experimental yeah, in its own way. It's doing different stuff. Just, I mean, yeah, very, very impressive. Yeah. I did think it was interesting how Watanabe clearly has certain character designs that he enjoys and comes back to again and again and i thought it was interesting how much uh this character of Alyssa looks like electra from the movie they have are oh. very similar oh, okay okay that's uh okay. vincent's girlfriend right right yeah okay yeah. i didn't even put those two together i just just noticed it this last time right. just just that there was a similar aesthetic going okay. on there. yeah and that that um spaceship chase at the end it's great elm is so good it's so good uh, this show does that so well these like spaceship action sequences and dogfights. the way that the camera moves with the ships is always just like really stunning uh, yeah i'm glad we're talking about this show it's a good yeah, show, it's a great man. show. <laughs> what can you say? I know. there's so much to dig into with it it's just really powerful yeah. man it's it's one of the best examples i can think of of a show that harnesses as you say the bounty of the week structure the structure of uh standalone episodes and allows them to have this cumulative effect exactly one after another you're getting all of these emotions layered onto these characters Mm -hmm. and they're just becoming sadder and cooler i know it really is like you're watching like someone paint a portrait or watching someone paint a picture and like watching them layer impressionistic impressionistic way. way and just like laying in the paint slowly so that by the end of the episode by the end of the run of the show or even by the end of the episode, all of these things, like I'm, I'm, I'm zeroing in on the word cumulative and like how each brushstroke from each episode piles into and layers onto things that you've seen either before or you will see in later episodes. Man. Yeah, calling forward to Oof. exactly like the end of Sympathy. I know, um, man. It's a good show, I know. man. All right. It's pretty awesome. Let me just stop. Let me just stop. <laughs> I know. We got <laughs> to stop, stop while we can. Uh, oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. You know what time it is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time yeah. For let's, name, some let's episodes, name some episodes. Man. All right, here we go. Yeah. I think I've got two today. I've got two. We got two. All right, all right, all right. Let's see how it goes. All right, here we go. Name that yeah. episode. The portion mm-hmm. of the podcast where I read to Alex descriptions 
of TV episodes and Alex Mm -hmm. with the encyclopedia that is in his skull (laughs) attempts to give me and you listeners the name of the Mm -hmm. episode. All right, here we go. In this second to last episode of The Wire, Michael kills one of his former handlers. A reporter does a profile on Bubbles and Lester Freeman busts Chris Partlow, Marlo Stanfield, and Cheese Wagstaff. Sorry, spoilers. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, spoilers for the end of the watch. I know. <laughs> oh man. Um, so this is the episode right before thirty, mm-hmm. the final episode. Mm-hmm. Is this one called um decision points? No, it's not. Or like it's not or like talking points, Mm-mm. something like that. Mm-mm. It's more geared toward um the newspaper. The right. newspaper industry. Right. Oh man. And it's something, it's like... It's like the opposite of... I'm going to be really generous. It's the opposite of the show that (laughs) Kyle Chandler was in. Mm. Mm. So was it late edition? There we go! (laughs) Yes, it is. is? Yeah, Uh Yeah. (laughs) That was generous. (laughs) (laughs) I was immediately like, Friday Night Live? No, no, not (laughs) Not that that one. one. Super it's not the lion's den no it's not the lion's den by the way dude it's funny after we recorded that little like impromptu commentary of the end of the lion's (laughs) Mm -hmm. den i was looking it up and dude the cast of that show was insane really it was so stacked i gotta pull up some of these names now the the one that immediately jumped out was just that uh maggie grace was on that show right before are you kidding me it was like a lost tie within the lost finale we were oh that's crazy we didn't even even know about it but like i mean okay okay so Let's see, let's see, let's see. I feel like Courtney Vance is in that show. Like, I just feel like it's a Courtney Vance show. Courtney B. Vance. It, it has those vibes right? for sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, shit. I pulled up. Uh, there's a Lion's Den show from 2021 that just oh, came that's out. that's not good. Mm, Here it is. And it's it's spelled the same way, L-Y-O-N. Oh, no. That's not good. Let's see. Okay, so Elizabeth Mitchell, speaking of Lost really? also on there. Yeah. And then, I mean, you had uh, Kyle Chandler, of course. Uh You had David Krumholtz coming in with some fire character Mm -hmm. actor chops. Mm -hmm. Robert Picardo, right before he was... um, Actually, no, it was right after Star Trek Voyager, I think, where he played the emergency medical hologram. Yeah, but like a genre legend uh-huh. for sure. You had Rip Torn on there, wow. Cliff Robertson. Wow. Uh, I mean, just like crazy. And then like tons of like guest stars too. It was a really stacked cast. Like at some point they thought this was going to be like- This was going to be the major show. prestige mm-hmm. shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It It's- friggin wild oh. who else who else oh we had jesse plemons on there a young what? jesse plemons showing up steven weber josh holloway what? okay all right yeah this people. is we need that's to, crazy you know what this man. means man we're gonna have to Jim do th- beaver or <laughs> jewel jewel shows up for an episode <laughs> we're gonna have to do the lion's den next peter mcnichol is in one episode this is like character actor like yeah, really clearance warehouse no man <laughs> this is nuts fire bro. sale this is a fire. John Polito. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. John Polito. Okay. All right, bro? listeners. This is the uh, next uh, show. Man. We're going to be doing the Lion's Den next. 
it's it's so funny uh <laughs> i'm i've been learning a bit more italian lately i i work with someone who is like on a student visa here who only speaks italian mm-hmm. so he's been teaching me a little bit but um i was very amused to learn that the word polito means clean and so hmm. john polito you know the like tiny like thin mustached sweaty greasy character actor who looks like he's about to have an aneurysm in every coen brothers movie he appears in john his name is literally mr clean Clean. (laughs) i was like oh this guy is the italian mr clean you could have him selling like a round of like household like products over there yes it's getting everything, you know, Italian food. <laughs> Just a thin layer of grease and sweat on all of your floors mm-hmm. and tile work. You can't beat that. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> but yeah, the lion's dead, man. What a cast. What a cast. <laughs> Just all getting, like, thrown at the wall. <laughs> and seeing what sticks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. All right. Here we go. Anyway. Number two. Okay. Yep, all right. Yep. Here we go. All right, veteran TV director Scott Winant directed the season two episode of The Shield in which Vic Mackey and Emma Mm -hmm. attempt to help a woman trapped in an abusive relationship while the strike team makes plans for the money train heist. Meanwhile, Aceveda demotes Dutch after the hapless detective embarrasses the department during a botched investigation. Does the botched investigation happen in this no it must have happened it happened previous previously episode. yeah yes yes uh is this one called homewrecker no damn okay yeah the abusive relationship i just immediately like jumped to that um that episode's crazy that's the one with the hostage situation with the guy who like murdered a bunch of women out of battered oh that's shelter. right i vaguely yeah, that remember that crazy. one yeah that's incredibly um, upsetting yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the shield. Yep. Incredibly, Incredibly upsetting. upsetting. What, what was the cast slogan? It's a. Uh, it's so wrong. It's so wrong. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Um. Hmm. Well, I am. <laughs> You're one episode off. I, I, okay. Yeah. Oh. Oh. This woman becomes a CI to Vic. I believe. Mm-hmm. Is this called greenlit? No. It is uh, not. That, okay. Yeah, you're going in the wrong direction. I'm going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. You got to move uh, towards the end. That. No, it's after that. It's, it's after, after that. both Greenlit and Homewrecker. Oh, damn. Okay. Is it Barnes? There we go. Oh, there we all go. right. All right. You know what? At that point, I'm just like naming you are. Right. So it's, I, I was not. It's okay. You got one out of two. Uh, one out of two. <laughs> it was a shameful <laughs> victory. <laughs> <laughs> it's a moral victory. Crawled across the, the finish line <laughs> on broken ankles with that one. <laughs> oh man! All right. Any final nice. thoughts on either of these episodes? On any of these episodes? On any of them? On any of oh them. man! Um, yeah, it's it's just another strong showing from a show that I love so much, yeah. and uh, yeah, I I just loved getting into the music mm-hmm. again because that's such an integral part of this show it's part of what really makes it so memorable i'm thinking again how each of these episodes just gets like stamped on your brain yes because these music tracks just just like focus you in on these images on these sequences and uh yeah 
Yeah. I have to say, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, at, I have had such a good time talking about these five that, um, yeah, I kind of just want to like go and watch the rest of the show right now. Because it's so easy. We could, you could watch the rest of the show in like two hours. It's Mm -hmm. so short, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, these episodes are just so easy to like blaze through a session. Like it's nothing. Ah, yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah, man. Cool. Well, uh. I so appreciate you talking about it with me. It's yeah, always a great time. Also, just want to thank everyone who's listening. Uh, you can send us questions at goatseasonpod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at goatseasonpod. That's uh, goatseasonpod. And uh, I also just want to thank Janice O'Leary for our artwork, Josh Sullivan for our intro music, and Battlequake for our outro. And we will see you next week. Peace. Peace.